the planning authorities of any given place choose to design public spaces to accommodate the people who use them, at least in theory. As a planner, you should focus on the common good. But what if the good of the many means negating the needs of the few? Or those in power, planning the spaces, focus on the needs of their supporters, discarding other voices. Welcome to Breaking Paradigms, a podcast where we talk about global perspectives on spatial planning in practice and theory, by Constance Frech and Sarah Couchy. We are creating three episodes on the topics of hostile city design and defensive architecture, with experts from academic and practical backgrounds. In these episodes, we will explore what happens when cities, buildings and public spaces are specifically designed to antagonize and share approaches that try to circumvent hostile or defensive architecture. Today we're focusing on the meaning of hostility in a city context, what it looks like and the path forward. We interviewed Robert Rosenberger, a philosopher of technology who is an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at the Georgia Institute of Technology. So what does hostile mean in the context of urban architecture? Hostile design is a sort of a new and controversial concept and is yet at the same time sort of an old and controversial concept, right? Uh, there is a way that people who have been studying urban planning and architecture and uh, even just politics and the public have been talking about these issues for a, a long time. Um, but just recently, it's become sort of an, a new topic as well to focus very specifically on how objects and public spaces are designed in specific ways to control them, right? And what does it mean when someone calls something hostile? Well, it's not just any form of control, right? There's lots of ways that public spaces can be controlled in good ways, I would say, that we might not call hostile. Something like a, a crosswalk, right? To get across the street and there's traffic lights. Those are all things that are controlling the public, right? Making the cars stop and uh, allowing the pedestrians to cross the street. Those are all forms of control. These spaces are used for this. You can park over here. You can walk over there. This space is for bikes. Um, and those things can be political and contested, but are not always uh, hostile. What ends up when, when technologies are forms of control and we call them hostile, usually what's going on there is we're criticizing those designs as somehow unjustly targeting some sort of vulnerable population, right? The idea would be something like, here is a population uh, of the city that is already somehow at risk or is already somehow discriminated against. And if we design our objects in a way to further that targeting and that discrimination uh, or, or the control of those groups, then 
then we could call those objects hostile. Now that's a value judgment, right? Uh, one person might call something hostile and, and someone else might say, no, that's not hostile at all. Um, is right there in the word hostility, right? That there's a value judgment being made. Uh, I, I think that we should think of hostile design, hostile architecture as, a, as an accusation rather than as some sort of objective description, right? Uh, it's it's a, a claim that's being made and, uh, and it's a, a value-laden claim, right? It's a call for action, right? It's a, a criticism. That's, I think, what, what hostile design is in an, in an urban context, right? Uh, what can we, what, what do people do to try to control one another? And in what ways are those forms of control unjust and open to criticism? You can see it in the name, right? So I use the term hostile design. That's the one that I prefer. Uh, hostile architecture is maybe even more popular. Uh, you'll see that as a, a buzzy term as well, but there's a whole list of other names that, that people who study this have used. Unpleasant design, architectural exclusion, uh, dark design, disciplinary architecture. So the term is new enough that it's unsettled, right? People are using different terminology to talk about the same stuff. There's also this term defensive architecture, right? And that's referring to the same types of objects and the same strategies, but you can see the different values that are reflected in the term defensive, right? Rather than hostile. If you're calling something hostile, then you are at least Im implicitly criticizing it, or you're at least referring to people who are criticizing it. Someone considers this hostile. Someone thinks this is a bad design that's, that should be criticized. If you call something defensive, then you might actually be defending that design. Oh, we're, we're using this de design to, to defend people from something unjust that's happening to them. So whether we're talking about benches or fences or spikes or, or the different things that we'll, we'll discuss, uh, some people will think that they're defensive and some people think that they're hostile. Personally, I come down on the hostile side, right? My, the, the work that I do is 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 criticizing this work, criticizing this kind of design work, and is trying to draw attention to what I think are some some unjust patterns in urban design and, and law. We continued our conversation and asked how does hostile city design look like with concrete examples? I can't pretend that I, you know, looked around and I deduced all of these hostile designs. That's That's not how it works, right? These things are are often quite hidden or quite innocent looking, especially if you're not the person who's targeted by them, right? I wasn't someone who was ever looking to sleep on a bench, lucky for me. And so I actually had to be had to be told by someone else that benches can be designed this way. And that's been the case for a lot of these examples. One of them that I think people will start to see now too is uh, what are called skate stoppers. These are little metal nubs, if you've never seen them before, uh, uh, sort of on the corner of railings, hand railings or uh, curbs or other ledges. And what they're intended to do is stop skateboarders from sliding skateboards across these surfaces. Another one that I 
have been pointing out and I and I don't see a lot of work on the skate stoppers and the the, the benches. Uh, those are very popular ones. But one that that I want to bring more attention to is locks that are built onto fire hydrants. Um, I've seen this. And yeah, this is a weird one. Right. But there are some cities where there will be a heat wave. Right. Where it will get very, very hot. Right. And some people who don't have access to as much air conditioning or public pools as others poor in like poorer neighborhoods, for example, people will open fire hydrants and play in the water. And it, again, it's complicated and fraught there. There that can be dangerous. It's a lot of water too that comes out, but at the same time, heat waves are also dangerous and, and staying cool when it's very hot is important. There's lots of examples of hostile design that we can go through fencing that blocks off, you know, small green spaces or spaces under uh, highways where people might try to sleep. There's examples of noise machines that will be, uh, yeah, that will be employed in parks. So they'll, what sometimes will happen is in a space where people will sleep at night and that uh, a city does not want people sleeping there, like a park or, you know, sometimes outside of buildings, they'll install a sound machine that makes either really annoying music or really loud, uh, irritating sounds, metal grinding against metal, uh, something like that. Yeah, uh, this is, I, there are a bunch of examples of this across the world. Another example of noise machines, it's a really interesting one is, uh, one that's not for people sleeping, it's for young people who are loitering. If you want to push away sort of teenagers that are loitering in front of your shop or something like that, there's this. there are these devices that you can get that play a sound that's at a very, very high pitch that young people can hear and that older people can hear, right? I could keep going. Uh, one of the ones you'll see is uh, water. People will install sprinklers uh, to spray water down on an area. And if you're ever walking by a building and there's a sprinkler on in the middle of the night spraying what just looks like the sidewalk and you think like, oh, well, that's weird. They left their sprinkler on by accident or this must be on a weird timer. Maybe they have plants out during the day. No, actually, oftentimes, or at least there are many times where that's actually used as a way to discourage people from sleeping in that area. But I think another example that should be on our radar are when expected things are missing. So rather than a spike added to a ledge or water sprayed on a ledge or an armrest added to a bench, rather than adding a thing, sometimes things will just be taken away. So something you will see is a subway station where there's just no benches. There used to be benches and then they just take them all out, right? Or an area of a city where there are no public restrooms at all, right? Uh, or an area of a city where it, uh, it's very hot, like uh, I work in Atlanta is an example of a city that gets quite hot, and there will be no shade, right? There'll be no, you'll, you think like, why aren't there trees on this city street? Uh, that's a that seems like a mistake. There should be trees here. How pleasant would it be to walk down the street? And it turns out that wasn't that was a choice. They did that on purpose because if there were shade, they would be afraid that people would loiter or that unhoused people would sit under the trees 
and they think that it's they made the decision that it was just better to to leave no shade at all just to leave it hot to discourage people from hanging around so i even think that there are design choices that involve taking things away rather than adding spikes and and bumps and fences we should have that that on our list as well we'll see different types of hostel design in in different cities and also different just sort of different amounts of it, right? I mean, some cities I go to, I'm just sort of struck by, oh my gosh, I see it everywhere. Uh, Buenos Aires, there were spikes everywhere. London uh, is a kind of amazing for how much hostile design. San Francisco, uh, some of them jump out at you. You know, you, you, sh- you show up there and you just immediately see it. And then there are other cities that you don't see it as much. And it has to do with what what those cities need and what their what their problems have been too, right? Some of those cities, San Francisco is one that that is actually very amenable to to living unhoused, right? So the the issue of homelessness there is is very complicated and and big. So you see a lot of hostile design. So the example of public drinking water and public water for cleaning, right, with a city like Vienna that provides that readily is is a good one because it shows us one of the alternatives right it's not it's not merely the case that cities have one goal which is to control these populations or to do nothing it is a complicated and fraught situation right and and we have to figure out how to distinguish between these things one of the ways that we can do that i think is to think about the effects rather than the intentions, right? It's hard to know what what people intend to do, right? What was the what was the real goal in the person's mind? When you think about ethics, that is an important feature, right? Did someone intend to do it? If you're in a court and someone's accused of a crime, whether it was an accident or whether they meant to do it is actually a big deal. But in this case, uh, there's so many actors involved right? It's not just the, the designer, the urban planner. Uh, it's also the, the you know, government officials. It's also the manufacturers. It's also the, in the transportation system of the city, right? The transit authority. We have all these different actors. It's not just one person who has, a, has an idea. Um, so it's hard to attribute blame there anyway. Hostile design is not not always, but is quite often built in a way that also hides its own hostility, right? The, the point of these strategies, right, of pushing, the point of pushing some vulnerable population out of a, an area, or the point of discouraging certain behaviors, uh, sleeping on a bench, loitering, panhandling, right? These the, if, if that is the goal of some of these designs, then a, a second goal is to also hide the fact that these designs are doing exactly that, right? What, why? Well, because it seems like the idea is not just, especially not just to stop a homeless person from sleeping on a bench, uh, stop a poor person from loitering in a public space, but actually to hide the problem entirely, right? It's not just that we don't want people who are living unhoused to be sleeping on the subway bench, right? It's that 
it's not that we would be perfectly fine if they were sleeping right next to the bench, right? It's that the, the goal of these designs is to hide the problem of homelessness altogether, right? You want the tourists or the, you know, business class people uh, in the business district or fancy restaurant district or something to not have to think about the, that problem at all, right? Uh, that seems to be part of the, part of the issue, right? I, I think that visibility is one of the main issues of hostile design, right? It, it's a control of what we see, what problems the city has uh, and how those problems can be hidden. An issue for us as people studying uh, hostile design and criticizing hostile design is to figure out what are these strategies that keep these things hidden and how can we expose them? Uh, one example we haven't talked about too much is uh, security cameras. Those are a reminder that we're watching you and that you're doing something illegal and could get in trouble and you should maybe go somewhere else. Furthermore, we ask whether he saw hostile city design on the rise and the international perspective. So if the question is, is hostile design on the rise? The, my impression is yes. There is some evidence that there's been a rise in, for example, laws targeting the unhoused, right? In the United States in particular, I can think of evidence that more laws have been passed, an increasing number of laws are being passed that are discriminating against homeless people, right? Uh, but those are laws, not designs, right? So are there are the designs increasing as well? Are these things becoming more sophisticated? Are they becoming uh, more more frequent that you see them around? That is a good question. And it's going to be a, a local question, right? I mean, I, but it's a global question because I'm seeing this happening in many countries across the globe. But it's happening in different ways and to different degrees. There are plenty of cities that I show up and I look for Like, oh, this is my first time here. And I look around and it's like the examples I'm finding are actually things that are, are quite positive. It doesn't, that doesn't mean that there are, there are no things that I'm missing, right? Uh, it's possible that I'm missing things. But, and then there are other cities where you see a lot of it. So it's different across the globe. It's different in different cities. It is certainly increasing in some cities, but but we don't have data on that. And that's, a, a I think, an open topic for empirical exploration. I think that here's the thing that we really need to think about, though. Hostile design itself is not often the main problem. It's just one aspect of a larger problem, right? Uh, so when it comes to the, say, the problem of homelessness, uh, which is, the, which is a, the big one, right, and is a, a complex and intractable issue, right, around the world uh, in different ways, Hostile design is not the thing that's causing homelessness, right? We can criticize armrests on benches and spikes on ledges uh, as contributing to the problem, but it, it, it's not causing the problem of homelessness. And taking all the armrests off benches isn't going to solve the problem of homelessness. Now, it might be a it might be a good thing to do just in terms of a strategy for harm reduction, right? It might be safer to sleep in public than to be pushed to the outskirts of the city. Right? to someplace less unsafe. So I don't mean to, to trivialize it like the hostile design is doing nothing, but it's a small, but it's, but it is a small piece of a larger problem. So we might need to be when, when thinking about hostile design, 
I don't want us to focus exclusively on the designs themselves and fixing them and have that be the solution to the problem. Where we, I want to think about hostile design and ho hostile architecture as parts of larger problems. So I think that when it comes to solutions to hostile design, if you're concerned about hostile design, the solutions are going to be actually pretty complicated. It's not just the removal of hostile designs, but it's the identification of what larger problems those hostile designs are a part of, right? What larger agendas uh, a city might have that you're in opposition to, not just the design, not just that object, but the treatment of that population and what we can, what we can do to be better. The discussion about hostile city design is an ongoing one, and we are thankful to Robert Rosenberger for his insights. Write us in the comments if there were any new or surprising aspects that you didn't think of before. And we are looking forward to discussing it more in our upcoming episodes. If you are interested in hearing the full interview with Robert Rosenberger, join our Patreon community. This was Breaking Paradigms by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchet. Be part of the conversation. If you like what we do, consider supporting us and join our Patreon community. Connect with us on Facebook, YouTube and at breakingparadigms.org. Content and editing by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchet. Sound design by Didac Barroso and Florian Frech.